Well, thank you. It is good to be here. I'm, uh, I'm going to pull a David Letterman. Some of you may remember David Letterman. Remember David Letterman's top ten? I never know what their top ten what's, but they're at the top, his top ten list. You familiar with those? Okay, I see some gray head, heads nodding. So this is my uh, top ten list for a person who's moving from the Midwest, Wheaton, Illinois, where we've lived since 1980, and then the last year and a half transitioned to like, that's a different weird word these days, but to being Lancaster County folk. And so I thought you might appreciate sort of the adjustments we've had to make, the accommodations that we've dealt with. So here's number one. The drummer's gone. I thought we'd have a little, okay. Forget the drum roll. I love that NFL games start at 1 p.m. instead of noon. Now I don't have to pay a, pretend I'm paying attention to the sermon the last half hour. I don't have to miss the kickoffs. Number two, I can't figure out why the Bears aren't playing on TV. But I am happy as an alum of Penn State to know that I can watch Penn State games here. Number three, we love Lancaster County food, especially the buffets. I don't like that I've gained 15 pounds since moving here. We love Philly cheesesteak sandwiches better than Chicago Italian beef sandwiches. Two cousin pizza is okay, but we still prefer Chicago style pizza. Uh, we're adjusting to sharing the roads with horses and buggies. We're still trying to figure out why our tires are this brownish color. It's fun to look out the window of our home and see cows and horses on the other side of the fence. We are absolutely delighted that Costco has large packages of room deodorizer. Uh, we love, oh, this is number nine. We love being 45 minutes away from our grandchildren and close to family which is better than the 12 hours drive it used to take. And number 10, drum roll. After spending 20 years teaching future pastors at Trinity, it's wonderful to come to this church and see one of our alums doing such a great job pastoring this church. That should have drawn an amen. I know it's the early service. We'll try to wake you up. Okay, I'm just learning how to control these buttons. Well, if you in any way are like the psalmist who is responsible for Psalm 78, you will find today's message hopefully a real helpful one. What this psalm deals with is how to overcome despair and experience the goodness of God. And we're talking about despair that's caused by the world we live in or by the people that surround us who like make life miserable for us. I admit, I'm a news junkie. If my wife were not around, from the time I got up, I'd have talk radio on till late afternoon, and then I'd have TV news on all night. I, I just love finding out what's going on, 
politically what's going on in the world. Probably because I travel so much and been many parts of the world, I, you become interested in what's going on there, what's happening, who's the new president, what's that civil war about. All these things just become part of, of my life, uh, have become part of my life. So in this psalm, we're going to encounter a man who is overwhelmed by how bad things are because of the evil people and the evil circumstances he finds himself in. And I think we can all identify with our psalmist. Now, this psalm is unusual in that what we have is a unique structure or a unique outline that makes this psalm, I don't know if unique is the right word, but certainly different than all the other psalms, and that it is, has a circular structure. Now, let me back up just a second and say that in recent years, I've had a completely new way of looking at the psalms. Part of my weekly quiet time routine is that I always do psalms on Sunday. Read two, three, four psalms, and that way I read through the book of Psalms. Uh, every year just on, on Sundays. It's, it's just been part of my quiet time practice now for many years. And I remember being taught early, early on in my academic career that the Psalms are sort of these nice little independent units. You can pick one up, you can read it, and you can put it down and meditate on it. And then at some point you go on to the next one. Now what I've discovered is that many of the Psalms are interconnected. And the interconnection is a very interesting thing. Now, if you look at your Bibles, Psalm 73 actually stands at the beginning of one of the five sections of the book of Psalms. Like the law, the Torah, the Old Testament, the first five books divided up in books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the book of Psalms is divided into five sections. How those five sections exactly came about, when they were put together, we, we don't know, but they were surely compiled over a period of centuries. But what's interesting is the way they were compiled and sometimes interconnected, placed together, so that an issue that may be raised by one psalm is answered in the next psalm. And so what you have to do is maybe not wait a week till you read the next psalm because you're going to find out, hey, they are connected. And an issue raised in the first psalm is addressed in the second psalm. Now, in this case, because Psalm 73 stands at the beginning of a new section, it doesn't really link to what uh, precedes it. But, indeed, we'll see how it does, in a sense, set up a situation that the next psalm will address. I don't know if I'll get to it today, but if I don't, your assignment is to read Psalm 74 and then come back, well, I won't be here next week, I'll be, I'll be in Chicago. Anyway, uh, at a Bears game, okay. Uh, <laughs> since it's not broadcast here. Um, but I'd love to talk to you, if I don't get to it today, uh, how you see a connection between Psalm 73 and 74. I only discovered it this week in my study. I'm saying, oh, of course, but maybe we'll get to it. All right, here we go then. All right, what makes this psalm so interesting 
is that unlike many psalms where you can go point A, point B, point C, point D, boom, it's over. What we have here is actually a circular pattern. And you can see it here with the verses and the themes. And what we're dealing with is uh, we start, in a sense, with the psalmist's conclusion. You know, so often the psalms will talk about how everything was horrible, I was, life was miserable, I prayed to the Lord, the Lord answered my prayers, isn't he wonderful? And the psalm ends. This psalm actually begins with the conclusion. Okay? So let's take a look at his conclusion. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's his conclusion. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. When we think of God being good, or anyone being good, we often associate that goodness as a characteristic of an individual. Well, they're really nice. They're really kind. They're really considerate. The Hebrew idea of good encapsulates all of that, but much more. Good has to do with how you treat and how you provide for. Good is measured by the things you do for someone else. <clears throat> Let me give you a couple examples. In Genesis, <clears throat> Genesis, chapter, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is about to enter Egypt. And you remember the story. He says to Sarah, look, you know, she's pretty hot, you know, 90 years old. I never did get that. But anyway, when you get to the border and they're checking us out, say that you're my sister. Then they will do good to me. Okay? That's, that's pretty much what he says. This is verse 13. Say you are my sister, that it may go well. It's the same word as we have in Psalm 73, the word tov, good. Well, sure enough, Pharaoh was in, in, intrigued by this woman. To make matters more perplexing, we're told that the woman, Sarah, was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, you can read that and think he was just invited, inviting her in to look at his artwork or something. But in Hebrew, when you take a woman, you're marrying her. Something's going on here. And as a consequence, and that's a whole other subject of discussion, but as a consequence, Pharaoh does all kinds of good things for Abraham. Verse 16, and for her sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well, did good for Abraham. And what did he do? He gave him sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. He gave him stuff. So when you say God is good, he is a God who is good and he demonstrates that goodness by giving us stuff. He gives us the things we need, the things that we need to function, to live on. So God's goodness is not just a, he's a nice guy, but he is a God who does good things 
to me and for me and for my family. And so when the psalmist says, truly God is good to Israel, he's saying truly God is good to his people, and then he individualizes it, to those who are pure in heart. Now we'll come back to this at the end because he's going to do a full loop. So let's leave that introduction slash conclusion and move on. Verse 2, but as for me, and now we're moving to our, our first arrow here going off to the left, and we start to see the despair that the psalmist experiences, the emotional and mental breakdown he is having. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's going to go off into a long diatribe now about the wicked. But just for a moment, what he's saying is, I almost gave up my faith. I almost lost my footing. And, and, and again, in Hebrew thought, again and again through scriptures, one is on the way, one is walking in the ways of the Lord. Uh, and, and this idea of walking down a path is how life is viewed. In fact, the verb to walk in Hebrew, halak, is the word that's used amongst the Jews for the laws, the halakhic laws, the laws that help you live your life, help you walk down the road of life. So here's the guy, I'm walking down, and I almost slipped. I almost gave up. I almost wiped out because I was so distraught by what I see going on around me. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw their prosperity. So he's just beginning to unleash his anger. He is disturbed by the fact, and it says there in, in verse 3, by their, and if you're, depending on what translation you're using, I have the, I'm using ESV, but he says, I saw their prosperity. That word is actually shalom. I saw their peace, their well-being. They seem well provided for. Nothing seems to go wrong with them. And he's envious of them. Now, the next section where he really unleashes, and by the way, the way this is set up is to show how his despair keeps going down, 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 okay? So the movement down, we're now at the, the uh, verses uh, 4 through 12, where we read about the good life of evil individuals. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this passage with very little comment, but I'm going to read it from the Net Bible. I have found out that one of the cool things to do here is to read from different translations, more contemporary translations, on a Sunday morning. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Net Bible, but it's a very... Uh, uh, well, it's a very good translation. Anybody heard of the Net Bible? Yeah, just Google it, Net Bible. It's safe. It's almost entirely done by Dallas Theological Seminary faculty, which for me as a Trinity man, I almost didn't want to look at it until I saw that one of my good friends, in fact, my, my neighbor, my next office over, uh, was on that committee, 
So I said, okay, if Dick's on that committee, it must be okay. Anyway, I have friends at Dallas, that's okay. But here's, here's how they translate it. It's really good. And this, this passage is, is complicated. And so if you're reading different translations, you're going to say, how'd they get that or how'd they do that? And the reason is because in this section, there are a number of really complicated words. We have one word that occurs, it's the only time it occurs in the whole Bible. We have another word in this passage that only occurs once, and that's in, in Isaiah. So we have some obscure words which led to translational differences. But I think the Net Bible really captures it in language we can understand. Here's what Net says. For I envied those who are proud as they observed the prosperity, the shalom of the wicked. For they suffer no pain. Their bodies are strong and well-fed. They are immune from trouble common to men. They do, they do not suffer as other men do. Arrogance is their necklace and violence their clothing. These horrible things they do. They don't hide them. They put it out there for everyone to see. Like jewelry, like clothing. Their prosperity causes them to do wrong. Their thoughts are sinful. They mock and say evil things. They proudly threaten violence. They speak as if they rule the heaven and lay claim to the earth. Therefore, they have more than enough food to eat and even suck up the water out of the sea. They say, how does God know what we do? Is the sovereign one aware what goes on? Take a good look. This is the way of the wicked. Those who are always at ease and get richer and richer. I wonder if you have people like that in your life, people you work with, people in your neighborhood, maybe even family members, and this describes them to the T. So you can understand why he is going down this path to despair, and perhaps uh, he, the psalmist, and maybe you, in your despair, will feel a little bit like the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a prophet who is living just before the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And he is looking around at things at his day, and he's utterly dismayed. Here's what he says in chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? How long will you not hear or cry to you, violence, look at the violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at the wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so that the law, the Torah of God, the law of God is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so that justice goes forth perverted. Everything is going crazy. Nothing is right. Why don't you do something, God? That's Habakkuk's complaint. God seems to be sitting in the last row and barely watching what's going on. And by the way, that was something the wicked said too. Does God really know what's going on? So you can see now that the prophet has, has reached a very low ebb. In fact, he comes to the point 
at the bottom of the right side, and uh, this is where he, this is really part four, if you're keeping track of the numbers, verses 13 to 16, where it's as if he says, why bother? Why should I do what is right? Why should I continue down the path of faithfulness to God when all around me is going the opposite direction? Let's take a look at, at verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. So he's referring here to both the moral aspect of keeping his heart pure and keeping his hand clean. Of course, when the Jews would come to the temple, they would have to go through extensive ritual cleansing before they could come into the temple precinct. Uh, you read about these in the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. And you remember that pool of water where Jesus put the mud on the eyes of the blind man and Jesus said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash your eyes out. That pool is one of the purification pools in Jerusalem. And that's where Jews would go dip and bath and bathe themselves. So the, 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 the psalmist is saying, why bother going through this? Why keep my heart clean, keep my heart pure, that is morally, ethically behaving in a way that honors God? Why go through these ceremonial rituals of keeping myself clean, to what end? When we come to verse 15, it's as if a light is just beginning to go on. A light is just dawning in his brain. In other words, he realizes he's going down a path of despair and he's getting to a point where he is depressed and he is uh, at, his, at his end. And look what happens here. He says, this is verse 15, if I had said really what I'm thinking, what's going on in my, if I speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What he's getting at there is, you know, if I keep down this road of self-pity, of anger, and I'm acting out publicly what's going on in my head, other people are going to see. Younger generation, what kind of an example am I setting for them? If my faith is being challenged right now, why act in such a way that might mess up somebody else? So he's starting to realize that if he continues down this road, it's not just him he's hurting, but it could be hurting a lot of other people too. Well, when you think he's reached the bottom, and it seems that he has, and as we come down to our circle, we get to the point where we see the reversal of despair. So we're going down, 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 down. We hit the bottom. The elevator's at the bottom of the shaft, and something happens and then we find that elevator starting to go up, 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 up. Let's take a look and see what turned it all around. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, how to comprehend this, it seemed a wearisome task. I'm wearing myself out trying to make sense of all this. Then or until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discern their end. 
When I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned or understood their end. What's so significant about going to the sanctuary? Okay, let's flash back 3,000 years time. The temple is standing in Jerusalem. And in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, of course, the glory of God in some way is manifesting itself. Whether there is a cloud that sort of hovers over the outside of the temple, um, it's difficult to say. But the point is, God's tangible presence is in the sanctuary. God is present in a very real way. So, number one, by coming to the temple... He is coming to the place where God has decided, at this point in history, he is going to make himself known, manifest himself to the people of God. Secondly, of course, the temple is a place where other believers gather to worship God and to bring their offerings. And so it is a place both of divine and human communion. And this is what turns it around for him. In other words, the prophet's perspective had been so badly twisted and lost that he did not know where he was going. Coming to the temple brought him into a right relationship with God, and suddenly everything makes sense. I spent many years, uh, in fact, almost 10 years straight, working on an archaeological excavation in Sinai, Egypt. And being in the Middle East, of course, we operated on the Egyptian work week, in which Friday is the day off. But Saturday and Sunday are work days. And I found myself increasingly messed up because I didn't get to go to church. I didn't get to gather with God's people for worship. I didn't get to connect and, and, and have that fellowship and I would find myself really getting completely disconnected from my reality. And I began to realize how important that time with God and God's people is to my intellectual, spiritual, and emotional well-being. And not having that, having that routine messed up, it's something I'd always taken, I'd just taken advantage of. And so... Uh, it was a, a wonderful thing to realize, just like the psalmist, that your perspective on everything changes when you come face to face with God. And the wonderful message we heard last Sunday about the importance of God's word, the scriptures in that process, uh, is simply I would like to amplify that and say about three amens. So, when the psalmist sees things from God's eternal perspective, he realizes the end. Now, this word end is used a couple times in the psalm, and it could mean simply the end of their life, but it also, this word, does apply to the end, i.e., what is beyond this life. In other words, the psalmist is recognizing that for those who lived without God, who rejected God's word, those who uh, lived evil lives, and as he says in verse 11, who say, how can God know? Is there knowledge of God in the most high? God doesn't have a clue what I'm doing about me. 
for those people, the end is a very dangerous outcome. So now the prophet's mood shifts upwards. And he now sees that the ultimate fate of the evil individuals is one that he will not experience. Let's take a look at verse uh, 18. Now remember, the psalm began with him saying, because of his mood, because of where he was at emotionally, he was on a very slippery place. He almost lost his way. He almost lost his footing and fell. Now, he says, he understands Verse 18, truly you set them in a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. It's not me who's going to fall. It's not the person who trusts the Lord who's going to fall and wipe out. It's the one who tries to live a life separate from God. They are the ones who are walking on slippery path. And so he realized again, everything has changed because he came face to face with God and started seeing things from God's perspective. Let's move down to the end of this passage in verse 21. And by the way, as he recognizes their fate, he also realizes, I can't believe I was acting that way. I I, I can't believe I was thinking that way. I can't believe I had my mind in so much turmoil about this that I was acting in a way that I really looked like an idiot. I can't imagine what my friends think of me now. So that's what he's saying in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, it's an interesting word because it's the word that's used for the leavening of bread. You know, it's as if I just allowed the stuff to be squeezed into me and to grow and to, and to rise in me and, and to the point where I was, I was just taken over by it, consumed by it. I was embittered when I was pricked in my kidneys. Okay. There are two words used here, the heart and the kidneys. He's talking about the totality of his Emotional and mental state. He was, he was affected by his anxieties, by his anger, by his frustration, emotionally and physically. So that then leads us to, from the psalmist regrets his despair to the psalmist's life and ultimate fate. So the psalmist's life... Um, This is verses 23 through 27. And this is the part of the psalm that most of us know, and I I counted at least three different songs uh, sung in the church that came out of verses uh, that we're about to read. So uh, you recognize these verses. Again, notice the contrast of where he sees himself in his relationship with God after coming to the temple, after having an encounter with God, how that changes everything as compared to where he had been at the beginning, where he was almost going to give up, where he was almost going to slip and fall because he couldn't quite bring things together. You know, so often 
over the years, I meet people, and one of the things that seems to trouble them more than anything else is trying to comprehend evil. If there's a loving God, why does God allow this? Or why does God allow that? And this is a vexing issue for many people. And all I can say is that we see here in this psalm that from God's perspective, everything changes. We also see from this psalm, although it's not maybe the most obvious point, is all those good things the evil person was able to experience is also because of God's grace. The fact they have some prosperity, the fact that they can enjoy good health, those too are illustrations of God's grace. Okay, let's now look at where the prophet is, or the psalmist is going, his ultimate fate. Again, notice the contrast between what he sees for himself in the future relative to the evil person he was complaining about a few verses back. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. I just want to stop there. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. I was just looking at this this week, but there's, there are pictures from ancient Egyptian tombs and temples, especially tombs, and someone papyri, in which the person who is deceased is being marched in for the final judgment, where the individual will stand before the god Osiris and his heart or her heart is going to be weighed on a scale. And as the person about to be judged is being walked into the hall of judgment, another god takes him by the hand and leads him to that place for judgment. Now, I don't know if that's the image here, but it certainly fits. What a comfort to know as I go into the uncertainties of eternity, the uncertainties of the future, that God takes my hand and leads me. The reference again to your right hand uh, and you will guide me and your counsel and afterward... That word achar, afterward, is the same word that the, that the psalmist referred to when he realized the end or the afterward for the evil. Same words. This is translated differently in our versions, but it's the same word. In other words, he realizes that there's a difference between what comes after for the evil person and what comes after or the afterlife for the person who has kept his heart pure who has maintained a relationship with God. And so both of us, i.e. the two kinds of people in the world, those who are believers in Jesus Christ and those who reject Jesus Christ and his atoning death, both have an afterlife. The question is, is God the one who will take your hand and guide you into it? Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength 
of my heart, the rock of my heart, and my portion forever. Whom have I in heaven but you? Again, his perspective has changed from the earth to the heaven. He's not so much thinking about what's going on here and now. He's shifted to the future and the beyond. And the other good thing that happens is he recognizes, and, and I'm sort of at that place of life, where my flesh and my heart begin to fail. He recognizes that he's going to start going downhill, physically, mentally, and yet, even as the body begins to die and deteriorate, even in that circumstance, God is the rock. God is the strength of my heart and my portion. Again, the portion, of course, is the inheritance, that which all the people of God, if you go back to the book of Joshua, every tribe, every clan, every family got a piece of the land. They got a portion of the land. That was God's blessing, God's provision for them. Now, so he's taking that idea of, of the inheritance that one gets, but he's transforming it not into this something for the physical here and now, but that God himself is his portion. What better thing? than to have that eternal connection to God. So summarize these four points that come out of this. Number one, I am with you continually. That's a wonderful thing for the believer to grasp onto. Number two, you hold my right hand and you guide me. Number three, you will receive me to glory afterward in the end and you will take me to glory. In other words, he will continue to experience the presence of God. The beautiful thing is that by coming to the temple, he got a foretaste of that eternal dwelling with God. And so too, as we come together and we worship week by week, whether it's in a large group, whether it's in a small group, we are supposed to be experiencing something of, a taste of, what the glorious fellowship that God has for us in eternity. Now we come to his conclusion. So his life and his ultimate fate, he's now worked through that. He's going to be fine. He's going to make it because God is with him despite the evils that surround him. He knows that the evil person, they will have their day, and they're the ones ultimately on a slippery slope, not him. So now we come all the way up and notice that in verse 28, we read, but for me it is good. Remember verse 1 began with, truly God is good. So the psalm begins with good, and the last verse ends with good. It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge. So when these sorts of things happen that have blown me away, I can go to him for protection. I can go to him for refuge. And then the last step, and this is really significant, is that I can tell of your works to others. And what's interesting is here the word tell is not really a word that's about speaking 
it's a word about writing. All our translations say, you know, speak or declare. But it's really a word about writing, uh, publicizing, publish. And I'm not sure why, because if you publish something, you're declaring it. But it sounds like he's saying, do it in a format that's going to last beyond the person you talk to as you walk towards the parking lot. When you talk about God is good and here are the things he's done. The other thing to note is that I may tell of your works, that is the works of God. When you read through the Psalms, this word is used a lot. And it's used of three different areas. First and foremost, the works of God are what he has done in creation. The world, the sky, the trees, etc. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. At the end of the seventh day, God rested from all the works, same word, which he has done in creation. So the psalmist may declare the marvels of God's works. He's talking about the marvels of creation. And I think that is a wonderful thing too when we are in despair or when somebody else is in despair is to point them to the beauties and the marvels of what God has done in creation. Secondly, this word works applies in the Psalms to what God has done in the past. Explicitly, the Exodus and how God's works was to save Israel from Egypt, to bring salvation to the people of Israel and then to bring them into the promised land. So you can go back all the way to creation. You can go all the way back to the Exodus, if you will, ancient Israel's salvation moment. And then finally, works can also mean the things that are done for me in my lifetime. He gave me a great wife. He's given me wonderful kids. I've had a great career. I have a wonderful home. These are the works of God. So the works of God here are not limited to one thing or another, but it's really a very broad spectrum. And these are the very things I think we can encourage one another. When that person comes in and they're feeling a little uh, down because they're having a horrible time with a colleague at work or they've been treated poorly or they've been fired by somebody who, who uh, was unscrupulous, we can encourage one another by these things. Well... So the psalmist has gone full circle from despair to knowing and experiencing God's goodness. And so we see this beautiful movement and the key point, the turning point, is how he connects with God through coming to his temple, coming to his sanctuary. Now I'd like to give you some what I call points for home, some applications. And I'll try to go through these quick. What time do we end here? 12 o'clock? Or is that the second service? Oh, okay. There's another service. Okay. Okay. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. You know, if you come here every week, that's great. But that's probably not enough. It's not enough. And that's what Brandon was reminding us last week about time in Scripture, time in prayer. Stay close to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Number two, keep an eternal perspective. Uh, it's so easy when we're surrounded by things, craziness, changing morality. Uh, you know, I don't have to give you the list. You know the list. 
we have to keep an eternal perspective. That eternal perspective is, is setting our minds on things above, not becoming so preoccupied with the here and now that we forget what God is doing. Stay connected to the church. And uh, the scriptures there I give you is well known. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day of his return approaching. I can't tell you how significant that is. And more so when you're outside a place that's as Bible-friendly as Lancaster County. Um, in fact, um, my next point is related to the previous, and that is identify with the church around the world. Uh, not only will you be blessed, but you'll be reminded in many situations how puny your problems are. Uh, wonderful things are happening in the church around the world. And it's wonderful that we have missionaries here. We have prayer letters, email letters. We have pictures we can post, uh, get to know these individuals and, and listen to the stories of what God is doing in their world. Uh, I've, I've had many wonderful opportunities over the years to um, teach in places that uh, many might only dream of, but I have vivid memories of teaching in Romania before the fall of the Iron Curtain and being part of an underground seminary and hearing the stories of those young church leaders uh, faithfully enduring uh, suffering, imprisonment, police harassment, uh, you name it, it was being done to them, and that they, they were absolutely undaunted. And I remember uh, in Prague, and again, this was back in 1983, meeting with a couple of Christians, and they kept on saying, do you think the Lord is coming soon? Do you think the Lord is coming soon? And my answer and my colleague, well, there, yeah, the Lord may be coming soon. And it struck me as when you're a Christian who is suffering for evil in the way they are in many places in the world, the coming of the Lord is really important. For us, it's, life is so good, we don't, we don't think about that, and we so quickly lose that eternal perspective. We also have to be reminded when we're surrounded by evil that God's kingdom will prevail. God's kingdom will prevail. In the world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said, but take heart for I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. And again, Jesus, Mark 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so these are the kind of things we have to bear in mind as we wrestle with living in a world that's increasingly anti-Christ, anti-biblical, and uh, just all-out evil. And then just as the psalmist ended his psalm with the importance of encouraging one another, uh, that is something we need to do. Uh, when a brother or a sister is distraught, discouraged, in despair, we need to offer them the encouragement that turns out to be a blessing to us. I'm reminded again and again 
by the things that God is doing around the world. And I wanted to end by sharing an experience from four years ago when I was teaching in Hong Kong, teaching a class for about 50 house church leaders in the unregistered church in China. And I was blown away by their commitment, despite being surrounded by evil, by forces that are trying to destroy them, and thinking how good we have it here. And they sang this song, and I wrote the words down. Fortunately, it was, it was in Chinese, but they had an English translation. I wrote it down, and it just reminded me how important it is for us to stay in touch with one another in the church, but also to be aware of and do what we can to connect with fellow believers around the world who really may be suffering in ways we can't even imagine. This was the chorus in their song. I will move forward in the wind calling China to awake. If I suffer and should shed blood, I will never turn back. The Holy Spirit leads me on. I will be steadfast in the Lord, send the gospel to every corner of the world. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that it's not your desire for us to be discouraged, to be despondent, but to be rejoicing in you, counting our blessings, and recognizing the good things that you do for us and have done for us. Lord, we thank you for your church, that your people gather in small and large assemblies all over the world, and we pray that you would continue to build that church that the gates of, of hell would not prevail against it. And help us here to be faithful to you, to be faithful to your body, the church, and to seek to honor you by how we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.